Thanks, team. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, uh, one of our newer partners here at Radius. I uh, had a chance to, to be a part of your baptism uh, this last year, David Perry. Uh, I, I talked with David last Sunday. We were talking before the service, and uh, if you're new to Radius, Pray May is going on. And so in the month of May, we ask our, our folks who call Radius home to pray during that month and, and even to do some fasting. And so on Wednesdays, we've been fasting, and then we come together on Wednesday evenings and we break that fast. And uh, so I was talking to David last week, and he was telling me about his experience fasting for the very first time. And I thought, you know what, I want you to hear his take on it because I've heard from many folks, hey, this is the first time I've done this. And um, I, I, I have no doubt in my mind that there are others who would say the exact same thing. I'm not ever really done this before. And so what's it like? Or uh, can I hear from somebody that's not a professional at it? You know? Um, so I said, hey, David, will you, will you share a little bit about your experience the last couple of Wednesdays giving fasting a shot? Yes, and thank you, Pastor Russell, for giving me a chance to, to do this because uh, I can say that it was amazing and it was eye-opening, and I think I messed it up uh, the first time I, I fasted on that, that very first Wednesday. Um, like everybody else on the planet, Wednesday is a work day, uh, so I got up and I went to work, and when I got to work, I went to work. Um, I was focused mostly on my work, and then uh, as the day progressed, my focus on work became less on my work and more on my stomach uh, because I could, feel the, uh, I could feel the appetite kicking in pretty well. And um, so I fasted, and I, but I felt like I probably just went through the motions. And I treated my fast as somewhat of a, of a gut check. And I know why that was. It's because I didn't have my, I didn't have my priorities aligned that very first week that I, that I did that. And uh, I always equate that to um, juggling acts, and I know that every one of us in this world is busy these days, and we're all juggling multiple demands, and I'm no different. So we've got all these balls in the air, and we're constantly juggling, and most of those balls are made of rubber, but at least one of those balls is always glass. You can drop the rubber balls but you cannot drop that glass ball. And I think I did in my first fast. I think I dropped that glass ball because I might have missed the point that that glass ball, well, that glass ball is always Jesus Christ. It's always God. But that glass ball on that first Wednesday was also my fasting, and it was my prayer, and it was my meditation, and it was all those things I should have been doing uh, to be closer to God. And I may have missed that a little bit. So you know, I was, I read my Bible and I saw, I found uh, Matthew chapter five, verse six, and what it says in so many words is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I want to be part of that. I want to be more of that. And I've got to do that by fasting and getting better at so. It's great. Um, as he was telling me the story, he's looking on YouTube, trying to figure out, man, what is all of this about? And can I drink coffee or not? And, and he's trying to run that by me. And like, I don't know. Don't violate your conscience, right? You'll be fine. And, and then we were talking about it week two and then thinking about what all have we learned? I mean, obviously the glass ball being Jesus Christ and fasting, hopefully says, man, I really want to focus on this. I don't want to lose sight of it. Um, what are some of the other learnings as you've fasted the last couple of weeks. Hey, Pastor Russell's right. So first thing I learned is I drink too much coffee because I had a massive headache uh, on that first day. <laughs> I had caffeine withdrawals out the, out the wazoo. But uh, I, I learned really um, 
two things, uh, if I may, and it's, it's kind of appropriate. My wife isn't here today. She's in the National Guard. She's on duty. But I got to thinking that, you know, if I spent an hour and a half a week with my wife and that was it, there is no possible way I could ever have any type of real relationship with her. And for a lot of my life, that was my relationship with the church and with Jesus Christ. I hate to say that, but that is the, uh, that is the truth uh, of the matter. So it was, you know, this fasting gave me an opportunity to amplify the fact that I need to spend more time doing that. And that was the beauty of being a part of Radius and being able to participate in this fast. And then I realized that this fasting is this act of self-denial and it's this act of self-control. And it's an opportunity for God to reveal my true, true spiritual position and where I stand, and it, it allows me to further transform in my walk with Christ and with God and to recognize that on these days that we fast, especially on those days, that there's nothing more important on my job than spend a little bit of extra time with Jesus Christ in, in prayer and medication. And again, I, I thank you, Pastor Russell. I thank Radius Church, and I, I'm going to stay the course on this because this is, this is awesome. Awesome. Well, y'all give it up for David. Thanks, man. Thank you. Yeah. I wanted him to share this because I walked in here Wednesday night. Uh, I had fasted, and um, I walked in here Wednesday night after sharing a meal. We ate in the atrium, and there's 100-plus people here. And when I came in this room, it was electric. Um, I've had some high moments here at Radius, and that was one of them for me. Is It just was electric, man. People wanting to pray, and, and we did for an hour, and it was people didn't want to go home. And, I, and my, my thought, I just was... I want all of you to experience this. I want you to experience uh, this, this idea of saying, hey, for, for a day, I can fast and, and I can come in here and pray and, and pray with others and the body and the family. And um, So anyway, I, I welcome you Wednesday night to, to hang out with us and, and to do it. We're going to do it again. We're going to celebrate baptism and we're going to pray over those folks and pray over the people in our lives that we want to see baptized. So it's going to be a great, great uh, Wednesday night. I hope you'll join us. Um, it's going to be good. David. We are in the series uh, called uh, The Life of David. And if you heard that up front, you probably thought, I cannot wait till they get to David and Goliath. And we are here. Today is David and Goliath. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a little shocked. I'm a little shocked that I get to preach this passage today. Y'all know how Pastor John is. He always takes the good passages. He always takes the good ones and then leaves me with all the stuff that's too hard to preach, right? And so he threw me a bone. You better put your seatbelt on. We are going to go. It's going to be a great time. Let's take off in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath, starting in verse 1. It says, the Philistines gathered their forces for war at Succah in Judah and encamped between Succah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and then they lined up for battle formation to face the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with this ravine between them. And then a champion named Goliath from Gath, he came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. He wore a bronze helmet and a bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins. Bronze sword was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking 
in front of him. This is a big guy. He's got all the equipment to go with it. Every part of his body is covered from the shins to the top of his head, save his face. He's got all of this metal on. He's got the finest military garb you could ask for. And then verse 8, he stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations. Why do you come out and line up in battle formation? Why are we doing this? Why are you coming out here? When I read this story, it's easy to jump past those first few verses and want to spend all of our time talking about how big this guy is and what his armor was like, and and we should and we will. But I'm going to be honest with you. When I read this up front, the story just comes across a little odd. It's just got a little oddity to it as I, as I look at these two groups of people, and, and I'll try to explain why it's odd to me up front, outside of the fact that we have a nine-foot, nine-inch man in the story, right? Here's why it's odd. It seems weird that Israel would be on this side and the Philistines would be on this side, And if you've read your Bible at all in the Old Testament, you know that every time we turn around, it feels like Israel is battling the Philistines. It's like some rival we can't get rid of. And there's probably a sermon in there because the Philistines should have been taken care of like years ago, but they weren't. And so I'm looking around at this and it just seems a little strange. Why are we doing this whole, like, send one man out, this this single combat war thing? Why are we doing that? Why aren't we all just getting after it? And if I'm the Philistines, why am I not just immediately attacking them? I've got a a nearly 10-footer here. And according to the rest of the story that we get in 1 Samuel, they have a tremendous military advantage. A tremendous military advantage. We know from other stories that they have chariots and horses. We know that they have all of this weaponry like swords and shields. And we just saw that this guy is clearly carrying one. Let let me show you another place that shows you just how intense the advantage is for the Philistines. It's not going to be on the screen. You can listen to these words. 1 Samuel 13 tells us this. No blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. No blacksmith, no swords and spears. Matter of fact, from a previous battle, this is what we know. So on the day of battle, not a sword or spear could be found in the hand of any of the troops who were with Saul and Jonathan. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had weapons. And we're going to get later in the story when when David finally shows up to battle Goliath. There's only one dude who can give him his armor, and that's Saul, because he's the only one carrying any. So let me get this straight. I got the Philistines on this side, horses and chariots and all the military weapons you could ask for. And I got the Israelites on this side standing there with rakes and shovels. This doesn't make sense. There's something up here. Why in the world wouldn't the Philistines just bum rush them right off the bat and take care of business? Well, it's because the Philistines are gun shy, a little gun shy. Um, let me define the word gun shy for us. In the 1800s, the, the term was coined when hunters would take their dogs 
and they would go out and say, hey, I need you to, to chase some fox, or I need you to point at a covey of quail, or, or, or maybe send some pheasants into the air. Whatever it is, they would, they would do that, and their dogs, when they would hear the loud bangs, sometimes would get gunshot. And instead of doing the very task the dog was supposed to do, the dog would go hide and cower in fear because it was hearing the loud noise and thought, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with that. So the Philistines are gun-shy, if you will. We see this all the time, like um, I, I, my kids are in youth sports. They go play baseball. It only takes one pitcher to hit a kid in the batter's box with a ball, and before long, they're just a little gun-shy, right? Like, I don't want to get in there. I, they're, they're always stepping out, just a little gun-shy, because they've had a bad experience. I think the Philistines have had a bad experience with the Israelites. I don't have time to get into all of it, but their first experience with them was with a guy named Samson. Samson was a giant in his own right, now not tall, but incredibly strong, and he gave the Philistines all they could handle. Matter of fact, if, if Samson would have done his job, we might not even be talking about the Philistines now, but he's too busy chasing ladies in his own little thing there. So we got Samson. Not only that, but the Philistines do go to battle with Israel in a previous war, and when they do, they win. And when they win, they decide, you know what? We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant because Israel thought, hey, if we bring our Ark of the Covenant that represents God's presence, if we bring it to battle, we'll surely win like God's good luck charm. Well, they ended up losing, and the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant back home with them, and they put it in the temple with all of their gods. The next morning, they wake up, and they worship a god named Dagon, and he, he was standing up like this, and the next morning, he was laying flat on his face. Some other things were happening, and so the Philistines were like, mm, we got some bad mojo here with this box. Let's get it out of here, right? And so they're struggling because they got a little bit of Samson. They got a little bit of this Ark of the Covenant. There was another battle they had with a guy named Jonathan where an earthquake hit and sent everybody running, and they're like, listen, I think we can win because look at them. They're just standing down there with rakes and shovels, but... I don't know, man. Every time we mess with them, something happens. There's something about Israel. Why don't we just send our 10-footer out there and just kind of see what happens, right? That's why they're gun-shy. Saul, who is the current king of Israel, he's also gun-shy. He's also leery. Now, again, I don't have time to get into all the history, but here's the reason why Saul is gun-shy. He went to war with the Philistines, and he was supposed to wait on the priest to show up before they went to battle. He didn't wait and decided to take matters into his own hand and offer a sacrifice. And when Samuel showed up, he said, dude, what are you doing, man? And sure enough, Samuel looks at him and says, this ain't going to work. God is gracious anyway. God allows them to get victory, and then Saul puts his foot in his mouth again. While they're beating the Philistines, Saul says, no one's supposed to eat until it's all over. And you know why he gave that command? Because Saul wanted the glory for himself. And so now, here's Saul, looking at a foe that they probably shouldn't even be battling right now, and he's gun-shy because he doesn't know the last time I tried to do this, I messed it up. I don't know if my bad decisions are going to affect my decisions this time. Is the Lord even with me anymore? They yanked my kingship. I, he's just over here in doubt 
in fear. I tell you that to say this. I think there's a lesson for us to learn right up front. I wonder for many of us if our if our fear to move forward in our relationship with God, if our, if our fear to, to take the next step or do what God might be asking us to do is because somewhere in our past we can line up a series of bad decisions or sin or um, some mistakes, and then we sit back and say, oh, but God wouldn't want to use me. I don't even know if God would want me to do this. I, I, we get in our own head and we go to thinking about it. And so therefore we get paralyzed in fear because we think, oh, the Lord surely wouldn't want me to do this. He surely wouldn't want me to step forward. Does he know what my relationships are like? Does he know what my past has been like? No, 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 no. I couldn't do it. I just want to, I just want to kind of take the, the weight off of the situation. And if that might be you today, I just encourage you to look around. And welcome to a room full of people who've made bad decisions and sin and made mistakes. And that God is wanting to use us. He does not want us to be paralyzed in fear because of bad decisions in the past. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be wise or to consider them. But I think sometimes we just think, ah, God's done with me. Ah, I don't think that's necessarily it. So we got the gun shy there. Because we're not sure if I even know the right thing to do. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 17 and let's continue in the story. We got this guy. He's looking at the people. Verse 8. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations. Why do you come out and line up in battle formation? He asked them, am I not a Philistine and you not the servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. And if he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be my servants and serve us. And then the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. You see it? lost their courage. He comes out there, fee fi fo fum. Which one of you Israelites want to come get you some, right? I mean, I don't know what he said. That's my best interpretation, right? I mean, he's up there. He's doing his chant, and they all, oh, they get scared. And not only is Saul now gun shy, who else is gun shy? All of Israel, all of the military. They look at him and say, too big, too, too impossible, too strong, too much garb. No way we can do that. And let me be clear. I think the narrator of this story wants you to think exactly that. The reason why he gives you the 125-pound chain mail and a 15-pound spearhead and a weaver's beam, I don't even know what that is, right? Like all of that is because he wants you to know when they looked at him, they thought, impossible, no way, can't be done, we can't win. And so they get gun-shy. Sometimes we get gun-shy because we have past decisions and mistakes and sin in our life that keeps us stuck. Sometimes we get gun-shy because we look at the opportunity or we look at the job and we say, no, 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 that's way too big way too big. Not for me. No way. 
And that way too big could be a hundred things. That way too big could be me lead a small group. Way too big could be, you want me to fast on Wednesday? Way too big could be, you want me to love my neighbor and share the gospel? Way too big would be, do you know the pain that I have been through this last year and you want me to trust God? Way too big could be a hundred things, but man, we just get paralyzed in fear because we look at it and we say, man, it's, it's just too big. He goes on, verse 16, he says, not only did this happen once, but it says, every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. 40 days he does this. 40 days there's this gun shy. 40 days there's this complete immobilization of, I, I can't do this for whatever reason. I wonder how many of us have been paralyzed in fear and for how long we have been. Frozen. Is this job, this task, this situation just stands up and says, fee fi fo Crazy to think about that, isn't it? So, verse 12, our hero enters the story. I don't have time. It's like 50-some-odd verses in this chapter. Let me paraphrase it. Verse 12 says this. Meanwhile, back at the farm, that's basically the way it goes, you have the narrator says, let's go back to Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. And he says, meanwhile, back at the farm, this is what's happening. Jesse looks at his son, David, and says, hey, David, you're here tending sheep while my older three boys are at the battle. They're, on, they're in formation. Apparently, David was too, too young to join the military. So his dad looks at him and says, I'm concerned for my son like any other dad would be. He goes, I need you to go down there and take some food. Don't just take food for my boys. Take food for the commanders and the generals. Let's feed them. I want them to be fully ready to go. And then he looks at him and says, I need you to talk to my three sons, your brothers, see how they're doing and then bring word back that they're okay. That's what I need you to do. David says, yes, sir. Sure enough, he goes down there, and he takes the food. He divvies it out. He finds his brothers. They have a conversation. He's like, how are we doing? And while he's having this conversation with his brothers, here comes Goliath, and he starts doing his fee-fi-fo-fum thing again. Now, David hears it, and David doesn't get scared. David doesn't cower. David begins to ask questions. And as David asks questions, he thinks of things like, who's going to take care of this guy? Who's going who's to end this? Who's going who's to put a stop to this big guy coming out here and defying God? That's what he says. Well, David says those words and his brothers look at him and say, hey, buddy, why don't you go back and tend the sheep and leave the fighting to us real men? That's what we need. Why don't you go back home, head back to the farm? We got it covered. Well, David said all those things and somebody was listening and they thought, hey, we actually have somebody dumb enough to go face Goliath. So he goes to Saul and says, hey, Saul, I got a guy. You're going to want to meet him. He's the only one who doesn't seem to be terrified of Goliath. And that's where we'll pick up the story. Goes up. He says this in verse uh, 31. What David said about why are we letting this guy win was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. I got you. 
I got you. Don't, don't, don't let this weigh you down any longer. It's been 40 days. I got you covered. I'll do it. And he goes on and he says, but Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine since you're just a youth and he's been a warrior since he was young. You can't do it. You don't have it in you. Sorry, buddy. I'm, I'm looking for more of a you know, military stature here, somebody with some rapport and some training. It ain't going to be you. So let me give you this one just for free, right? This wasn't in a point, but let me give you this one. Um, sometimes when we're frozen and we're gun shy, we want everybody else to be gun shy with us. We, we want everybody else to be frozen, just like us. We, we, don't, we don't want anybody to move forward. We're scared of that. And not only was Saul saying, hey, uh, you can't do this. Not only that, but his brothers were like, hey, you, what are you talking about? Go back home. We got this covered. Misery loves company, right? Is that what they say? It's amazing sometimes we get in this deal of, oh, I, 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 I'm not going to fast. You probably shouldn't either. Oh, I, I, I'm not going to do that. You probably shouldn't either. Oh, I wouldn't get into that. I wouldn't worry about that. I, it's amazing about all of the things in our lives that when people are frozen and gun shy to move forward and take their next step spiritually, all the people that just around us say, well, yeah, I don't know if you want to do that. That seems radical. Whatever it is. Anyway, so what's David say to this? Verse 34. David answered Saul, your servant's been tending his father's sheep. And whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it. I struck it down. I rescued the lamb from its mouth. And if it reared up against me, I would kill it or grab it by its fur, strike it down and kill it. I mean, that's a verse and a half right there, isn't it? He sits back and says, lion or bear comes and gets a lamb. I go get it, grab it by its fur. I we, we save the lamb. And if the lion and bear still want some, I got it. I killed him for it, right? Took care of business right then and there. Let's go. Verse 36. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of his, this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. I really think that last phrase there, go and may the Lord be with you, this is Russell's interpretation, was more like, go and let the Lord be with you. <laughs> right? Right? I mean, like, what's going to happen here? This ain't going to work. He's like, you're the only thing we got. Best of luck to you. There's something about this speech I want you to know. This is the first time and the only time, only time God is mentioned at all in this battle is when it comes out of David's mouth. And he clearly says that this is, this is against God. God will help me. God will accomplish this. God helped me in the past. God will help me now. I think sometimes when we get gun shy, this, this little, little speech by David tells us another one. Sometimes we get gun shy because of past decisions and mistakes and we don't think we might be used. Another one is because the obstacle or the task or the situation seems too big. A third one is, is because we just forget whose team we're on. We just forget who's on our side. We just forget who's for us. We just forget. And everybody's forgotten except two. 
David. David hadn't forgotten. David knows exactly whose team he's on. David's like, whoa, 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 it's just a Philistine. He's uncircumcised. He's outside of Israel, and he's trying to make trouble for us. And so listen, we're God's people, and I'm with God, and God is with us, and so he's been with me in the past. I don't know why he won't be with us in the future. If David wanted to, he could have said, time out, time out. Let me give you the speech here, fellas. Does everybody remember how God has been with us? Does everybody remember how he was with us and delivered us from slavery in Egypt, 10 plagues? Does everybody remember splitting of the Red Sea? Does everybody remember manna from heaven, water from a rock, quail a waist high? Does everybody remember marching around Jericho, blowing in some horns and the walls came down? The walls came down. Like he could have given that speech right then and there, couldn't he have? He could have done it. And basically this is what he's done. He's like, God's been with me and he's been with us. What's the holdup? You can't forget whose team you're on. You can't forget it. Um, when, you, when a dog is gun shy, when a dog is gun shy, this is what happens. It forgets that the guy who's causing the loud noise actually loves that dog, cares for that dog, feeds that dog, gives it water. It forgets that that guy's for me. That guy loves me. That guy's not here to hurt me. Matter of fact, the guy who's a hunter is saying, I just want you to do dog things. I want you to do the dog things that you like to do as a dog. You want to chase a fox. Chase a fox. And when he, when he runs across, I'm going to shoot the fox. I'm not shooting you. I want you to do dog things. I want you to not be scared. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to go point at that covey of quail just like God designed you to do it. Don't be scared. Don't, don't, don't hesitate on the noise. I, I want you to go find some pheasants and stir them up. And when I shoot, it's at them. And then that way when we go to clean them, I'll throw you some scraps and it'll all be great. I want you to live in freedom. I, don't, I want you to go enjoy we're on the same team. And I think so oftentimes we just, we just forget that we're, we're on the same team. Um, let me pause there just for a moment and try to address something that I think the, the narrator of the book is trying to get us to see in this story of David and Goliath. Would everybody agree with me? Nine foot, nine inches, that's like a giant, right? Giant. Um, can I spend just a little bit of time talking about giants? Can I do that? Like you came this morning, paid good money to hear about giants, right? Let's talk about giants just for a second. Um, this is not the first time. This is not the first time the nation of Israel has encountered giants. Let me show it to you. It's going to be on the screen. Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13 fascinating story. You'll remember the nation of Israel was promised this land flowing with milk and honey. God promised it to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And they took this short detour for 400 years plus in Egypt. And when they finally made it out, Moses was leading them to the promised land. They get right up to the edge of this land that was going to be theirs and it was going to be awesome. And they decide, hey, before we take a step further, Let's send in the spies, 12 spies, check it out. Let's see what's over there before we just venture in, right? And this is what the report comes back. Verse 31, 
But the men who had gone up with him responded, We can't go up against the people because they're stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land that they had scouted. And the land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim, these crazy warriors from yesteryear. Their descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. Exclamation point to ourselves. We seem like grasshoppers and we must have seen the same to them. They look over there and they're like, there's no way. They're massive over there. We're little. We can't win the war. Twelve spies. Two of them say, let's go. Ten of them say, let's pump the brakes. They decide to listen to the ten that said pump the brakes and they wouldn't go to the land for the next 40 years. They just wander. Why? God's response when they said they're too big. Listen, God's response when they said they're too big was, why do they despise me and not trust me? Why don't they trust me? I've done all of this stuff. Why don't they trust me? Because they forget who's on their side. So they're just going to sit there gun shy going into the land that's been promised to them. And they even know what's over there. And they sit there gun shy. Because they forget whose team they're on. Um, There's another couple of passages with some kind of crazy giants. Can I read them to you? This is going to, it's crazy right here. When I think about some crazy giants, I think of Job. Job chapter 40 and 41. Let let me read those to you. Job was facing a very different situation. Job forgot what team he was on as well. You see, Job had gone through amazing suffering, had lost everything. And for 30 plus chapters, Job is wondering, is God on my side? Am I on God's side? And he had all kinds of friends telling him everything in the world. And the way that God responds to him is fascinating. Let me read it to you. Job Chapter 40 um, says this in verse 15. Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. Look at the strength of his loins and the power in the muscles of his belly. He stiffens his tail like a cedar tree. The tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. His bones are bronze tubes. His limbs are like iron rods. He is the foremost of God's work. Only his maker can draw the sword against him. There's a long list here. I can't read all of the description. The word behemoth really means big beast or mega beast. He's looking at Job, and this is what he says. Who can tame this beast? And it's a rhetorical question that would say, no one. But God is saying, I can. I can. Look at it in verse 24. Can anyone capture him while he looks on or pierce his nose with snares? For us, the answer is no. But for God, the answer is, I can Whose team are you on, Job? I can. Look at chapter 41. He goes to a different beast. It's a crazier one. Verse 1. Can you pull in Leviathan with a hook or tie his tongue down with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? What is Leviathan? I'm fixing to read the description here in a minute. Mind is going to be blown. He's saying, who can do this? 
Not you. I can. Let me read the description, starting in verse 12. I cannot be silent about his limbs, his power, and his graceful proportions. Who can strip off his outer covering? Who can penetrate his double layer of armor? Who can open his jaws surrounded by those terrifying teeth? The answer is no one, but God is saying, I can. His pride and his rows of scale closely sealed together. One scale is so close to another that no air can pass between them. They are joined to one another so closely connected they can't be separated. His snorting flashes with light while his eyes are like rays of dawn. Flaming torches shoot from his mouth. Fiery sparks fly out. You with me now? That's crazy, isn't it? He's going through this list. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames pour out of his mouth. And the list goes on. Read the entire chapter. This monstrosity of an animal, monster, is amazing. And when you read all of that, he goes back over here and he says this in verse 5. Can you play with Leviathan like a bird? Or put him on a leash for your girls? The answer is what? No. But God is saying, I can. What a verse. Can you play with him like a bird and put him on a leash? Will traders bargain for him or divide among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? No, but I can. Lay a hand on him and you'll remember the battle and never repeat it. Any hope of capturing him proves false. Does a person not collapse at the very sight of him? No one is ferocious enough to rouse Leviathan. And who can stand against me? Who can stand against me? You don't get a whole lot of physical descriptions in the Bible about people. And so when you get them, you need to pay a lot of attention. Especially when you get four verses about a nine foot nine inch man who's got all of this poundage and military might that anybody reading it would say impossible no way it can't be taken he can't be overthrown and when you get 40 verses about beasts that no one can handle save God alone it ought to remind us of something that when we look at a big scary monster giant situation. We remember this. Our God is bigger. Our God is bigger. You don't look at the giant and say, oh, look how big he is. You look at the giant and say, look how big God is. Because he can put him on a leash and let our little girls play with it. Crazy, isn't it? I think the narrator wants us to see that God is massive and he is big and you cannot forget whose team you're on. We're on his team. So after Saul says, go and be with you, back to 1 Samuel 17, Saul says, well, at least give me, let me give you some gear. He can't get the gear on. So David just says, I'm going to take my slingshot. I'm going to take my staff. I'm headed out there. Verse 41. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. 
Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. If there was ever a chance for David to get gun shy, this was it, right? As he gets closer and closer, Goliath gets bigger and bigger, and he's like, oh, my bad. I thought you were somebody else, right? Look at his response. He looks at him, and David said to the Philistine, verse 45, You come against me with a dagger, a spear, and a sword, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel's armies. You have defied him. This isn't me we're talking about. You may not like me. You may think I'm too young. You may think I'm a little dog, but buddy, you got your hands full here in a minute, and it ain't with me. You picked a fight with God. And then he goes on in verse 46, Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, cut your head off, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth. And then all the world will know that Israel has a God. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. That's the whole mission. That's the whole point. God doesn't put us out here for us to demonstrate our own strength. He doesn't do this for us to demonstrate our own glory. As cool as David is here, and he is super cool for his faith and trust, but he's super cool because of his faith and trust in a big, honking, magnificent, glorious God. He says, man, everyone's going to know. Verse 47, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to this. Philistine gets tired of listening to this this talk from David. So verse 48, when the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and it hit the Philistine On his forehead, the stone sank into his forehead and fell on his face to the ground. One verse to describe the battle. Fifty-eight verses in the chapter. One verse to describe the battle. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Then he goes over, verse 50. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Even though David had no sword, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath. He used it to kill him. And then he cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they ran. Of course they did. Remember, uh, David's dad said, I need you to do three things for me. Feed the men. Go find out how the boys are doing. And give me a report. The rest of the passage says that once David cut his head off, he took it back to Jerusalem. I can imagine Jesse sees his dad, or Jesse sees David coming in from afar, and he comes out and says, how are the boys? How are they doing? Is everything okay? Are they still alive? David flips this sack onto the ground. They're going to be all right. Right? Right? Am I the only one crazy to think that stuff? Golly. Why? Not because, not because David's supernatural. It's because his God is. Hey, I, I just want to tell you this. When I, when I talk to you about whose team are you on, when I talk about who you trust in, let me tell you, 
I believe that God is for us. I believe that God is for us. I believe that God is for every person in this room. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God is for you. He is not against you. And there is pain and there is suffering and there is evil and there is chaos and there is all kinds of stuff in this world. But you need to understand, God is for you. His glory and his might and his majesty is for you. And if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, let me tell you this. God is for you. <laughs> He's for you. He's so for you that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a life you couldn't live, to die a death you deserved, to be buried, and three days later, come out of the grave. And if you think David defeating Goliath is cool, or God putting Leviathan on a leash is cool, the fact that Jesus Christ defeated sin and death and the ultimate enemy, way cooler. God is for you. He's for you. We don't want to forget whose team we're on. And if you haven't embraced Jesus Christ, man, embrace him and know that God wants you to be free. Sin and shame, he wants you to have that. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, 50-some-odd verses, and, man, there's so much to talk about, so much to think about. I, I think about the fact that, man, what would it have been like to be there to, to see something that had taunted you for 40 days hit the ground? Some little kid out there with a staff and a sling. What would it have been like to to celebrate that victory? What would it have been like to just to pause in the moment and say, man, God is big. Man, you are big. What would it have been like to, to walk around and look at the head of that giant on a stick in the middle of the town and say, wow, our God did that. So every week, Lord, we, we come in this place and and that's what we try to do. Wow, you did this. Wow, you love us. Wow, you, you sent your son for us. Wow, you are glorious and majestic and creator. Wow, that you would love me. Wow, that you have something for me. Just wow, Lord. And just to draw us to worship you and to love you and be in awe of you even more. And Lord, I pray as we come and sing these songs and take this bread and juice that we would remember just how glorious and how awesome and how amazing you are. It would remind us that you are for us and not against us. And Lord, we'd be willing to shake off any place that we're gun shy to take our next step for you. That's what I ask. It's in your son's name we pray, Lord.